0: Listen, the, the, nothing boils down to my emotional response to anything, and nothing is ultimately about us or about you, but let me tell you that as I was sitting in the back, I was so thrilled and so deeply moved in my soul as time and time again, whether it was, you know, the food that was being served or the fellowship around the tables or whether it was the guys having fun and making us feel like family with the welcome time, or whether it was music or the missions moment or any component of this evening, it's amazing to me that the Word of God, if taught faithfully and preached boldly, produces stuff. I think about Sandy and the ladies that are going to be doing the Titus 2 ministry with you. It just blows my mind. You know, Annalise, you say, Hey, we need this. And then the women answer. And it's just amazing to, to watch rainfall. To watch seed planted rain fall, and God gives the growth under sunshine of his word, and let me just encourage you continue, continue, continue to love Christ, continue to keep chasing Christ, and it 's just going to happen. You guys are just going to multiply i've been so thrilled to to hear. Not only the teaching itself, but the reports from the teaching and my absences, whether I'm at elder meeting or other things going on, if I'm teaching brother to brother, and we've got Jake and Chad and and Stan and, and Scott, and, and we've got a whole host of guys coming in faithfully teaching the word, and we have you faithfully hearing the word. I cannot tell you how excited it makes me. Again, it doesn't matter about my emotional response, but I think of Martin Luther after the Reformation burst out the gates and... Uh, Everyone came to him asking, what's the secret sauce? How do you do it? And he said, I didn't do anything. The word of God did everything. And that's the truth. So, so encouraged uh, to see that. So encouraged to see those of you that are in town for Thanksgiving and looking forward to enjoying the rest of the holidays. Well, as you turn in your Bibles to Esther 9, we remember that Haman is defeated Mordecai is now the prime minister of Persia, which is no small matter. King Xerxes has condemned the scheme against the Jews, but it's just legislation at this point. It's just an edict at this point. Now, I don't know if we caught this last week, but if you would look with me at the end of chapter 8, verse 17... We learn there, if we look carefully, the cliffhanger on which we are hung before chapter 9 is that, like many Egyptians in the Exodus, a great many Gentiles converted to worship Yahweh and join his chosen people. This is startling. I mean, on very few occasions did many people at once turn and worship Yahweh, who were not part of Israel, and they became Jews. The men were circumcised and became Jews. The women, the children became Jewish. We see that in the Exodus. A great deal of Egyptians moved out with Israel. I don't know if you knew that, but that happened. And here we see it again. And so in so many ways, the book of Esther is really recalling the events of Exodus as God leads a great salvation for his people, protecting his people against all odds, in a superpower, in the superpower of the world. The king of heaven and earth has brought a repenting dread on lost souls, and how gracious and compassionate is he just in the nick of time. Seems like God likes that time. Seems like that's God's favorite time, is in the nick of time. And here he's done it again. Verse 1, chapter 9 of the book of Esther. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's word and law had reached the point for them to be done, you remember his original edict was that Haman could do whatever he wants. So we're reaching that moment. Uh, The the Israelites are, are, are sweating beads of sweat. They're sweating bullets. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain power over them, it was turned around so that the Jews themselves gained power over those who hated them. The divine reversals in this book continue. The providence of God continues to work for his people. We shouldn't be surprised and yet every time it's excitingly surprising. The viper Haman is dead, but his evil plot is about to hatch. That's the drama of the moment. That's the tension of the moment, making it all the more miraculous that Gentiles have become Jews. I want you to think about that. They're thinking that the edict's going to be carried out. You're, they're thinking that Jews are going to be exterminated. And Gentiles, by a miracle of God, by the regenerating grace of God, are repenting to become Jews when it's most dangerous to become Jews. And this is what we've seen throughout church history, throughout redemptive history, is that when the church is most most persecuted, it seems that's when they reproduce the most. That's when they multiply the most. That's when the gospel spreads the most. The, the, The church is really built in the blood of the martyrs. But there will be no martyrs this day. God is essentially directing Satan's missile back to destroy his enemies. Verse 2, the Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes. It's just hard for me to pronounce the other name. So I'm just going to stick with Xerxes, okay? Ahasuerus, to send forth their hand against those who sought their calamity. So the Jews are rallying. They're going to make a military campaign. They're going to fight for their lives. It's self defense. They were going to be slaughtered like lambs. And no one could stand before them for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. You remember this is an empire. This is not just a nation. Persia has become an empire. They, they rule the known world. They've, they've conquered where Babylon had conquered, plus more. And so the king of Persia, King Xerxes, rules over many nations, many provinces that have their own princes. And there are many peoples represented in, in this empire. And the Jews live scattered about in all these nations, in various cities. And so all the Jews are coming together and they're looking to fight for their lives. They're looking to defend themselves. Now, doesn't it seem, I've kind of given, kind of shown my hand a little bit, but doesn't it seem if they're going to come together and fight against those who sought their calamity, doesn't that seem to violate God's law? Doesn't that seem to break the big number six, thou shalt not murder? Do you know that when you are defending yourself, as Israel is prepared to do, you are actually obeying the sixth command, thou shalt not murder? You're eradicating murderers, you're preventing murder. They didn't start the violence. They're preventing genocide. I just had uh, today. I, I I did a graveside service for an Armenian family, and the Armenians' big part of their culture is the genocide they suffered from the Turks. And listen, our human history is a long, horrible, bloody history of people killing people. It's horrible. It's tragic. It's a result of sin, and so it's not any particular group of people over others. I mean, you think about, you know, the, the whole uh, political discussion about white people coming to North America and, and eradicating Native Americans. But you think about the natives. They were, they were killing one another. Indian tribes against Indian tribes. And this is the history of the world, sadly, because of the fallen Adam. It's ugly. It's gross. It's sick. It's damnable. But when people are plotting a genocide against a people... They have every reason in the world to save themselves, to defend themselves, to take up arms. So look at verse 3, how God is working providentially, the God that still remains unnamed and will continue to be so through this book. Even all the princes of the provinces, so all these little nations that the empire rules, the leaders, the princes over those, the the little miniature kings over each of the nations the empire governs. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's work advanced the Jews. I mean, when does this happen? Read the news, folks. I heard, I heard that many of you don't even have a clue what's going on over in the, the, the uh, country of Israel. That you don't have a clue what's going on. Read the news. Uh, really, make sure you read the right news because there's a lot of wrong news out there. But when do you see the governments coming to help? The Jews, usually, uh, the idea is, is anti-Semitic and the sentiments are anti-Semitic. You think of Hitler and the Nazis, and you think of the atrocities committed against the Jews back in the 1940s. But in this case, the Jews are innocent victims. They've done nothing to warrant such violence. So even provincial princes or national leaders helped them, verses 3 and 4, because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. See, a Jew has become prime minister. This is not the first time this has happened. Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt. Daniel became the prime minister of Babylon. God has a really fine way of exalting his people to positions of power to protect his people. And so people are scared of Mordecai right now. He's wielding power. He's dressed in white and violet. He's, He's wearing a crown. He has the king's signet ring. He has authority to rule Persia. On behalf of Xerxes. Indeed, as we continue, Mordecai was great in the king's house, in the royal house, in the palace, and the report about him went throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. God did that. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Mordecai has embodied that. I think of 1 Peter 5. It's a very important text for us as shepherds uh, to know. 1 Peter 5, you remember the end of uh, the gospels, John 21, Peter's denied Christ three times and Christ doesn't come to him and say, now Peter, you you really messed up once, twice, three times, let's talk about your sins. No, he just asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the response that Jesus gives to Peter is the sweetest thing ever. He says, then tend my sheep, feed my lambs, i.e. shepherd my flock. Now Peter heard that. That changed Peter's life. Peter was expecting a harsh critique from Jesus. He was expecting to receive rebuke from Jesus. He had every reason to. And Jesus, at every point that we think he's going to be harsh, is gentle. He's approachable. He's, he's patient. He's enduring. And so he tells Peter, feed my lambs more than anything in the world. I'm not looking to get retribution against you when you mess up. I want you to care for my sheep. Like I care for you. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly, desiringly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men and younger women, Likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's funny. I was meeting with Gordon and, and Jake a few moments before we started College Young and Adult tonight, and Gordon made some sweet comment, and he said, Well, you is one of my elders. I thought, That's the first time someone said some, something like that to me. I am technically one of the elders, but it's the first time someone said, Hey, Elder Sam made me feel a little bit Mormon. I didn't like that very much. And old. Um, clothe yourself, clothe yourself with humility toward one another for here's the reason God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, practical application. What should we do? Humble yourselves under the mighty strong hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. You want to know what the most proud thing is that you do? Be anxious. You think you're in control? You think you're the one working out your life. You think that your life depends on your wisdom and your power, and it makes you anxious. You want to know how to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Take everything that's making you anxious and throw it on him because, here's the reason, he cares for you. Mordecai's been doing this. Mordecai leads this way. Be of sober spirit, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Mordecai knows this. Mordecai has seen it with his own eyes, he's lived it, he has feared for his life, and he's put his anxieties on God. And God, in his care for him, has loved Mordecai and has exalted Mordecai by the same mighty hand that he has opposed Haman. How do we know that the Jews are behaving in a godly fashion in this situation? There are many times the Bible is very honest about the the people of God and that they're living in obedience and outright rebellion and that they incur the curse and the judgment of God. It's not that the Bible always takes a pro-Israel stance in the sense that they're innocent or guiltless. But we're told that they're behaving godly here, defending themselves, fighting. Thus, as we continue... The Jews are operating legally. Thus, that's what that means. Thus, the Jews are operating legally under the king. Remember, Xerxes has authorized that they defend themselves. By Prime Minister Mordecai. But do they recklessly seek revenge without any restraint? They have been given permission to do so. They've been given permission to be reckless. Ask yourself, do they take advantage of that? Do they take advantage of the license they're legally given? Verses 5 to 10. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword. Innocent civilians? Women and children? Nope. Enemies killing and causing them, enemies, to perish. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And at the citadel in Susa, that's the capital, the Jews killed and caused to perish 500 men. Really quickly, in case you've forgotten, King Xerxes gave them permission to kill women and kids. The pagan king said, kill them all. Kill the women and kids. Did they? 500 men. No women or children. Why not? Because too much or too little justice is injustice. Too much justice, too little justice is injustice. So they slaughtered only men who wished them harm. Enemies who were plotting their death. And oh no, I spoke too soon. See, this is what happens is I start getting carried away, I exposit a text, then I make conclusions prematurely. Not only did they kill 500 men, and not only the men did they, oh shoot, who else did they kill? Well, I'm going to have a hard time with this. I should have practiced this. Parshandatha, Dolphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' adversary. I think there's a little bit of humor there. They killed 500 men and the sons of Haman. What's the implication? Those aren't men. Now, the king also allowed them to plunder spoil. King Xerxes explicitly says you can kill the men, you can kill the women, you can kill the children, and you can plunder their spoil. But what does the text tell us? They did not send forth their hand for the plunder. Not only do the Jews spare the women and children but they neither abuse nor deprive the women and children after they've killed the men that are plotting their death. Uh, Listen, young men and women, God's word is more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. I'll say it again. God's word is more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. It's shocking to me that a 2,500-year-old book reads like news. I am amazed. We've been in Esther, what? I don't know. We've been in in Esther well before the the conflict in Israel, the war in Israel was going on. It was like God wanted us to be in this book while this was happening. It was kind of like that, huh? Just amazing to me. Isn't it amazing that the Lord provided Esther so that we'd rightly understand the war in Israel and not buy Satan's lies that are streaming across glowing screens Isn't it amazing how the same Lord who protected Israel in the days of Esther is the Lord protecting her today? Perhaps you've heard of Hassan Youssef and Masab Youssef. Hassan is a founder and leader of Hamas in the West Bank. But his firstborn son, it's recently come out, had worked undercover to protect Israel. Why? Masab, several years ago, heard the gospel in Jerusalem. He repented and he trusted Christ, the son, the firstborn son of the leader of Hamas. Quote, I studied Islam more thoroughly and found no answers there. This is a devout Muslim in a world of just Muslims. I re-examined the Quran and the principles of the faith and found how it is mistaken and misleading. It amazed him, he goes on to say, how God is revealed in Christ in scripture and he can talk endlessly about Jesus all day long. But And he, he says, and I'm quoting, I don't know what this means, Feel free to investigate this and tell me what he meant. Muslims are not able to say anything about Allah, about God, as they understand him. Quote, I consider Islam a big lie. This is him speaking. Its leaders admire Muhammad more than God, killed innocent people in the name of Islam, beat their wives, and don't have any idea what God is. I have a message for them. There's only one way to paradise. The way of Jesus, who sacrificed himself on the cross for all of us. And then he directs his attention to the Jews. You Jews should be aware. You will never have peace with Hamas. Islam will not allow them to achieve a peace agreement with the Jews. I know them very well. They don't care for the Palestinian people. They do not regard human life. What's his hope? Masab closes with these words. Maybe one day I'll be able to return to Palestine with Jesus in the kingdom of God. Masab Yusef now says he admires Israel, speaking of admiration for Israel. Verses 11 to 12. On that day, The number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa came to the king. He heard report of how many had been killed. So the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and caused to perish 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. Now, in the rest of the king's provinces, that's just the capital city, out there in the rest of the empire, what have they done? What's happened out there? So what is your petition? It shall even be given to you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. What would make you happy, my wife, my queen? Notice, by the way, that where King Saul had failed hundreds of years prior, he didn't kill Agag, the Jews have now succeeded or are beginning to succeed. And what a reminder to us that delayed obedience is disobedience. And delayed obedience is always so costly. So costly. Look at the mess. Verse 13. Then Esther said, If it is good to the king, let tomorrow also be given to the Jews who are in Susa, in the capital, to do according to the law for today. You let us fight today. Let us fight tomorrow like we fought today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So, let me translate a little bit. Let us continue warfare one more more day. Legal warfare. And so that people will surrender. So that we can get a peaceful resolution. The guys that are already dead. Impel their carcasses in public. So that people see. Yeah, let's stop. Verses 14 to 15. So the king said that it should be done. And a law was given in Susa. And Haman's ten sons were hanged. Impaled is really the idea. And the Jews who were in Susa. Assembled also on the fourteenth day of the month. Adar. And killed three hundred men in Susa. But they did not send forth their hand for the plunder. They're allowed to kill women and children. They don't. They're allowed to take the plunder. They don't. It's precision. It's precision it reads like a surgical special ops mission. But what about the provinces? What's going on out there? What happened out there? Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to make a stand for their lives and to obtain rest for themselves from their enemies and to kill out there in the provinces and the rest of the empire 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not send forth their hand for the plunder. This was done on the 13th day, that first day that they fought, of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. They celebrated. A day of victory is a day for feasting. A day of sorrow and repentance, fasting. Every day should be a day of fasting or feasting should be a day if, if, if the Lord's brought conviction to our hearts over sin and we want to give the day to fast and pray or we've, we've suffered some heartache, some tragedy, fast. But if it's a day that the Lord is good, let us rejoice and be glad in it. He's always good, of course, but you know what I mean. If it's a day that he's done something good, feast, feast with gladness. We should put our whole heart into every day every day should be a day of fasting or feasting and we see that here so so get this the, the whole point of this text is this on the 13th on the 13th the Jews in the capital and the Jews in all the districts all fought i just watched hunger games this past week so that that's in my mind a little bit so you got the district you got the cap, uh, you got the capital you got the districts right the Jews everywhere in panim are fighting okay in the capital in the districts they all fought but esther requests an extra day of fighting just in the capital okay you guys following so on the 14th the jews in the capital are fighting a second day while the jews everywhere else in the districts are celebrating and feasting you see On the 14th, the Jews in the district's party. Verses 18 to 19. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and gladness. They fought two days, the 13th and 14th. They feasted on the 15th. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas, the districts, the outside, the provinces, who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for gladness and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. This is all explanatory. Scripture is a book of truth. Scripture provides historical facts so as to reveal the God of history. Grandpa, Why do the rural Jews out in the districts celebrate on the 14th of Adar but the capital Jews celebrate on the 15th of Adar? Why is the feast of Purim a two-day festival? Well, there's a very good historical, factual reason for that. The same exact thing can be applied to people who question whether Jesus was crucified on a Thursday or a Friday. Well, you would celebrate Passover on both Thursday and Friday. Lambs would be slaughtered on both days because different regions had to do different things practically due to their proximity to Jerusalem. My point is is this, I may be boring you and I apologize if that's the case. I don't apologize for the word of God, but the messenger might be boring The authors of scripture include details for a reason. Modern skeptics poke cheap fun at seeming contradictions, but they assume assume way too much. And we've been told what assuming does to the one who assumes. God gives you and I the record of, of Esther 9. So that we believe the God it reveals. We trust him. The God who will not be mocked. But the God who loves his people. Who's in control of every little detail. Who's wise beyond our wildest comprehension. And who's good beyond our ability to understand. And so he loves us. And he cares for us. And he's working all things together together. For our good, and even when the Bible seems to have unnecessary details, or repeated details, or details that seem to contradict one another, it's actually an opportunity for us to be most inquisitive, because the authors under the inspiration of the Spirit are telling us something quite interesting, quite fascinating, and we're the dumb ones until we figure it out and discover, my goodness, God's smart. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would plunge deep roots in our hearts of confidence that you've spoken truth and you've spoken truth because you love us and you want us to know you, you the God who knows and loves and works all things together for our good. We thank you, Lord. What a good God. What a good God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.